Welcome back to For the Defense. This is season two, and I'm David Oscar Marcus, your host of this podcast where I interview the great criminal defense lawyers of our day about their most exciting and interesting trials. And in this premiere to season two, I am really excited that we will be interviewing Alan Dershowitz, the famous professor from Harvard Law School. And there were so many cases to choose from in interviewing Professor Dershowitz, but uh, we've chosen the O.J. Simpson case in part because I was one of Professor Dershowitz's students during that actual trial. And it's a funny story about me getting into Harvard Law School. Um, I was a student at the University of Miami School of Law, first year student, and did really well my first year and on a whim decided to apply to Harvard Law School at the end of my first year. And I hadn't heard anything back. It was a week before school started, uh, my second year. I was in the law review training at University of Miami. And back then, of course, we didn't have cell phones. We had beepers. And I got a beep from a 617 area code. So I called it back. And lo and behold, it was the registrar from Harvard Law School telling me I had been admitted. And uh, I had to let them know by 5 p.m. that day whether I would be accepting because uh, they wanted to admit some other folks if I wasn't going to say yes. And so I called my dad, who was a lawyer here in Miami, who had also gone to Miami and had been practicing in Miami for about 50 years. And I told my dad, Stuart Marcus, I said, Dad, I don't think I'm going to go. I, I'm here in Miami. I'm happy. I have a girlfriend. I'm doing well at school. I'm, uh, I'm comfortable. I have my apartment. And my dad said, are you crazy? Hang up the phone right now, go pack. We're gonna get on a plane tomorrow and go to Boston, go to Cambridge and get set up. I'll handle your apartment, don't worry about it. And he said he was gonna go to the airport and buy two tickets for us to fly up the next day to Boston. And I listened to him and I did. And it was the best decision I had ever made and I owe it all to my dad. I met my wife uh, on the very first day of school getting up there. I made so many contacts. I love law school. And I also met Professor Dershowitz and became very close with him. Uh, he became a mentor to me. I took his criminal law class when I got here, uh, when I got to school there. And now I'm going to get to talk to him about the O.J. Simpson trial um, when I was in his criminal law class back in 1995. I hope you enjoy this first episode of season two of For the Defense. So I'm really honored, uh, and, and this is a great uh, time for me because I get to interview the greatest appellate lawyer in the history of the United States, Alan Dershowitz. And he's more than just the greatest appellate lawyer. He was my professor when I went to Harvard Law School back in 1995. He was my criminal law professor and we became uh, friends and he's a mentor. So this is a real treat for me. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Professor Dershowitz. Well, it's a treat for me. Uh, you are one of my best students and uh, you've become one of the great criminal lawyers uh, in the country. And uh, I'm so proud of your accomplishments and I'm so proud that you're doing this podcast about lawyers. So, you know, I used to tell my wife when I get out of class, she would ask me, do you have a good class today? And I would say, yeah, I learned something from my students. And that's when I had a good class. And so I'm, I'm here today to learn from you. Well, I, I remember back uh, in, in 95 when I was in your class, you would never miss a class, even though you were handling the biggest criminal trial of the day, the Simpson trial. I remember a lot of the other professors uh, famously, Arthur Miller, who was not part of the case, uh, we'd show up to class and there'd be a sign on his door saying uh, class canceled today so he could appear on Good Morning America. I mean, you never missed a class. No, I prided myself on never missing uh, classes. Um, I was called the Lou Gehrig of, uh, <laughs> of teaching uh, because, you know, I, I, I always showed up in class. The only time I remember missing a class, I usually when I had to come in for a class, say, at 11 o'clock. Uh, from New York, I would come in the day before, but one day toward the end of my career, um, I decided to stay over in New York and take the Accela train up to uh, Boston, which would have gotten me there at about nine in the morning, plenty of time for the class. And the train got stuck and uh -huh. we couldn't get out. And I had to have Charles Ogletree take over that class for me. Uh, but other than that, I, I never miss classes except for 
Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Sandy Koufax was my hero. And if he couldn't pitch on Yom Kippur, I wasn't going to teach on Yom Kippur. Well, you know, in the OJ trial, um, before you got involved, you were doing some news uh, spots about OJ and the like. And I remember you saying um, that you mentioned to your wife when you saw that Nicole Brown was murdered, that OJ probably did it. This was before you yeah. were involved in the case. I mean, wh why did you think that at the time? Well, the husband is most often the suspect, particularly the husband when there's been a broken marriage and uh, we knew he had a history of uh, having been abusive to uh, his wife. And it just, at that point, as an observer, it looked like the uh, finger of evidence was pointing uh, to him. And um, it, uh, uh, that was just the opinion of, a, of an outside observer. I didn't have any connection to the case. I didn't know him. I didn't know his lawyers and I was entitled to my own opinion. Sure. And, and, and you know, I also remember the low speed chase, of course, um, and I don't think you were involved at that point either. No. Um, and, and most everybody thought there was going to be a suicide. I think you mentioned the same thing. Um, yeah, I know. In fact, I was very, very upset at O.J. Simpson, because if you recall, uh, the chase occurred during an NBA playoff, National Basketball <laughs> Association playoff. And I was watching the ball game and they switched away from the NBA to the boring, 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 slow, <laughs> sweet speech chase. And so I was saying, what the hell? I want to go back and watch basketball. It, it wasn't a case that particularly interested me. I mean, I was a fan of O.J. Simpson. I loved his uh, his football playing, and I, I liked his ads on television, but I, I didn't know him, and, uh, you know, I had no connection. I knew Bob Shapiro slightly. He was one of his lawyers uh, at the time, but um, and when Bob Shapiro called and asked me if I would join the defense team, my first response was, I can't. I've already said on television that I think he's guilty. And I remember Bob saying, everybody thinks he's guilty. Everybody has said that. Uh, and one of the reasons I agreed to take the case is that he was facing the death penalty at the time. And as you know, I, the two categories of cases I don't turn down generally are death penalty cases and, and First Amendment free speech cases. And so how, how did you decide to take this case? Was it because it was a death penalty case or were there other factors? Well, the death penalty part of it, and also because um, I thought it might involve law and science, and that's been my specialty. As you know, when I got to Harvard Law School in 1964, before you were born, uh, and uh, I was regarded as the and professor, because everything I taught was an and, law and psychiatry, law and ethics, law and literature. I even taught a course on law and baseball. And, and so I remember you also said professor, that the case was won before the trial ever happened in some of the preliminary back and forth. And, and in this case, there was a grand jury that was set to hear the case. And you all filed a bunch of motions. What happened with those motions? What was that all about? Yeah, I wasn't responsible for filing those, um, those pretrial motions. You know, everything was, everything was, was tactical. Um, and we wanted to, you know, lock in as much of the testimony as, as, as we could. Um, and uh, the case was won before we ever went to trial. It was won when Officer Van Adder poured O.J. Simpson's blood on a sock lying flat on the table. Um, you know, it was won um, when um, Darden made the decision to have O.J. try on the glove. It was won when the district attorney of Los Angeles County decided to try the case in downtown Los Angeles rather than where the alleged crime occurred. It was one when they picked, um, as the true trial lawyers, um, uh, one inexperienced lawyer, one uh, lawyer who uh, put her own interest before the interests of her, her client. Uh, the, end, the end result is we didn't win the case. The prosecution lost it. If people are upset that OJ went free because they think he's guilty, put the blame where it belongs on the prosecution. The job of the defense, of course, is to win the case by all ethical and proper means. But this was a case the prosecution could have won, I think, if they had had the right prosecutors, if they had made decisions about who to put on the witness stand, who to keep off the witness stand, and hadn't used evidence that was clearly planted uh, in an effort by the police to frame somebody they believed was guilty. So the case was won before Johnny Cochran ever set foot in the courtroom. He did a good job, uh, but it was won by us and lost by them very early on. So there, you, you said a lot there. I want to break down some of it, Professor. One of the things that you talked about was 
It's a criminal defense lawyer's job to win. Right. Many people think this is a true adversary system, right? Where the prosecutor's job is to win, the defense lawyer's job is to win, and the truth will somehow come out. Is, is a criminal trial a search for truth? And I ask you this, um, having taken a bunch of your classes and right. debated these issues with you, but I think it's really important because I don't think the public understands what a criminal trial is all about. Well, it's certainly not a search for truth. The science is a search for truth. If a criminal trial were a search for truth, we wouldn't have exclusionary rules. We wouldn't say that if a person confesses on video to having committed the murder, that confession doesn't come in if he hadn't been given his Miranda warnings. Uh, a search for truth wouldn't uh, exclude evidence uh, like that. A search for truth wouldn't even exclude evidence obtained as a result of torture. I Should have we have those kinds of rules? Should we have those well, kinds of rules? Uh, well, that's the question. Of course, we should have those kinds of rules because a criminal trial is a public uh, event and it requires a balancing of interests, uh, rights and privacy, etc. Um, do you know that the Constitution um, the United States does not forbid um, exacting a confession from somebody by torture? Uh, you can torture somebody uh, mercilessly and obtain a confession. And the Supreme Court of the United States has said that that act itself, the act of torturing somebody, is not in violation of the Constitution. The only thing that's in violation of the Constitution is admitting that evidence against that defendant. You could admit it against other defendants. Uh, you can use it in civil cases. You can use it in the media. But you just can't use it against that defendant. The exclusionary rule is designed just to keep evidence out of trial and often it's evidence that would conclusively prove the guilt of the defendant. If, if a criminal trial were a search for truth, we wouldn't have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We wouldn't say better 10 guilty, go free, than one innocent be wrongly confined. We would say it's equally wrong for a guilty person to go free as for an innocent person to be convicted. We wouldn't put the thumb on the scale of presumptions of innocence. When you search for truth, you don't presume anything. You just look where the evidence falls. So it's it's wrong to say that it's a search for truth. It balances a search for truth against other very important values that the Constitution uh, puts before the search for truth. One of the examples that you famously talk about is the ticking time bomb example with sure. torture. And, you know, in that situation, uh, you say torture is OK to stop the ticking time bomb or maybe OK, but certainly not OK to admit in a criminal trial. Well, I don't think torture is okay even to stop a ticking pine bomb. What I say is that it would happen. There, every president of the United States would close their eyes and close their ears and, and sit like the three monkeys uh, with, you know, the hands over their mouth, their eyes and their ears. If somebody came to them and said, look, unless you forbid us from engaging in torture, we will torture this person and find out where the nuclear bomb is planted that will kill 10 million people. There isn't a president of the United States or a leader of any country in the world that wouldn't authorize torture. So my view is that if you're going to have that, if that's a fact, then you ought to have a process. And the process ought to be a torture warrant uh, with approval by the judiciary, the legislative, and the executive branches. My goal was to reduce the amount of torture to the barest absolutely necessary. I don't believe in torture or support it, but it's going to happen. But of course, the media totally misinterpreted my view and said I was an advocate for torture. I was right. called Torquemada, um, you know, People were debating what kind of torture I favor. Uh, but, you know, when, when you write controversially about issues of nuance, you always know you're going to be misquoted. That's the risk of, uh, of, of, of trying to write about matters like this. You also talk about proof beyond a reasonable doubt, of course. And in a criminal trial, I don't think jurors really even understand what proof beyond a reasonable doubt means. The instructions that are given are very vague. Terrible. How, how do we explain to jurors, let alone the public, what it means to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, the instructions are awful. I mean, um, I've seen instructions that say it's the kind of proof that would require you to make the most important decisions in your life. Right. <laughs> Let's assume I had a choice between open heart surgery or some other uh, procedure, and um, one procedure had a 51% chance of saving my life and the other a 49% chance of saving my life. That's the most important decision in the world. I go with 51, but you don't go with 51 in a criminal trial. So these instructions are all designed to get the jury to forget about proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt requires that if you believe somebody did something, you must still acquit them. 
Uh, and that's hard for a jury to do. And when I do my rare jury trials, that's the first question I ask on voir dire. If you believe somebody did it, would you convict? And if the person says yes, I throw them off the jury. Uh, believing a person did it isn't enough. You have to believe it to the exclusion of virtually all other possibilities. You have to believe it uh, on a very, very high level. There was an attempt in New York to try to quantify proof beyond reasonable doubt. They asked a bunch of judges what it meant. And judges varied from 95% to 55%. Um, even judges don't even understand what 95% means or what 55% means. Very few judges are sophisticated uh, mathematically. What a lot of people say is no such thing as 95% likely. He either did it or he didn't do it. Uh, so it's, it's funny you say that. And I used the example last night with my high school senior daughter that you gave in class, which is assume a, a blue bus struck someone and killed right. someone. And 90% right. and of the blue buses are owned by company A. Um, yeah. Is company A, is that proof beyond a reasonable doubt that company's A bus struck the person? And my daughter was like, of course not. And I said, well, that's 90%. What if a, a, an eyewitness testified that it was so-and-so who committed the crime? And we know that eyewitness evidence is only 90% reliable. She, of course, said, well, that would be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's even with the 90%, you have subtleties because of the difference Oh, and your daughter is brilliant. Your daughter is brilliant, which doesn't surprise me. I would say the vast majority of people would take, would take that view. I used to use that exact uh, example in class, in fact, eyewitness testimony is not even 90%. Uh, it's probably less than that, depending on the racial mix, depending on <clears throat> a variety of other factors. And yet uh, no court of appeals would ever reverse a conviction right. based on eyewitness uh, testimony, but they would reverse the bus conviction uh, because they don't want to be confronted with the direct issue of what percentage is there that's required. And so you know, we we use the jury to operate behind the black box and um, and we don't want to know too much. In the Mike Tyson case, for example, uh, the judge was really a prosecutor. She had been a former rape prosecutor. She was picked by the prosecution to be the judge. Imagine that the prosecutor gets to pick the judge. She excluded several witnesses, eyewitnesses who totally contradicted the testimony of the um, uh, uh, of the accusing uh, witness. And, and yet the, the, the courts um, uh, affirmed uh, the conviction in that case uh, based on just her word against his. So, you know, you, you get situations where eyewitnesses are excluded, where the evidence is very disputed, and the courts just don't reverse uh, convictions as long as somebody said um, it happened. And so, they, they, you know, the courts don't follow proof beyond a reasonable doubt, especially appellate courts. They say if any reasonable juror could have right. found evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, we'll affirm the conviction. So, Which is no standard of, at all, of course. So, As you know, I think I wonder how many of your audience knows that the rate of reversal of criminal cases on appeal, um, if you ask most people, and I've done this in my lectures and my classes, what do you think the rate of conviction of reversals are on appeals um, you know, they read about the reversals, they read about Von Bulo, they read about other cases like that. They'll say, oh, 40%, 50%, 30%. There's no jurisdiction in which it's even close to 5%. Um, in Georgia, it's less than 1%. In most states, it hovers around 2%. If you include sentencing reversals, it gets up above 5%. But just reversal of convictions in the federal courts, it's around uh, lower than 5%. I'm used to and that course, in, in the 11th Circuit, of course, where I live. Uh, it's, yeah. it's very, very low. OJ, of course, doesn't get to appeal. We'll hear how they win the trial in For the Defense next. Before getting back into the OJ trial, I'll tell you a quick story about Professor Dershowitz. So I get up to school as a second year student and I'm taking his criminal law class with other actual first years because at University of Miami, we take criminal procedure, not criminal law. So I had to take that first year course at Harvard Law School. And he recognizes that I'm a 2L and that I had transferred. And so we become friendly. We start talking about Miami and we start talking about transferring and so on. And he ended up inviting me to a heat Celtic basketball game uh, just to make me feel welcome and to 
uh, invite me to the law school. Um, the guy was always looking out for his students, always very generous with his time and with his students. And I think it goes to just the type of person he is that he was literally trying the O.J. Simpson case, teaching a class and one of the most famous law professors in the world. And he was looking out for a transfer student who had just uh, come up to a new place. Let's hear how he deals with the O.J. trial in For the Defense next. Let's let's get into O.J. for a second. So one of the things you mentioned, Professor, was Philip Van Adder and his testimony. You know, you said at the beginning, criminal defense lawyers are there to win. Prosecutors have a different duty. Prosecutors are there to not win, but to seek justice. And yet they put on a witness, a detective who testified that he went to OJ's house, not because he thought OJ was a suspect, like even you and all the rest of us thought uh, when when the murder first happened. He said uh, he went there to make sure OJ was safe for some ridiculousness like this, not to actually search around the house. And yet the prosecutors put him on the stand uh, with that testimony, knowing I mean, they had to have known that was false testimony. Oh, of course. But, uh, you know, I know you read my book, The Best Defense, that, again, I wrote probably before you were born. No, not quite, but close to it. Um, Back in 1982, and I laid out the 10 rules of criminal defense. And, you know, one of the major rules was that policemen generally lie about the circumstances of search and seizure. Prosecutors know that policemen lie. Judges know that prosecutors know that policemen lie. And yet they all go to the sh- through the charade of of um, of, um, of believing it. Wh- one of the things that happened in the case is because that search was so plainly illegal, Van Adder decided to create a piece of evidence um, by laying out O.J. Simpson's sock on a table and pouring blood from the test tube of O.J. Simpson and the victim in order to create a piece of evidence that would be as good as the glove, which was found during the illegal search because Van Adder thought the court would exclude the product of the illegal search. What Van Adder didn't realize is that in California, judges are elected and elected judges are not going to throw out evidence in the O.J. Simpson case if they want to be re-elected. If you ask me for the worst aspect of the American criminal justice system, the worst is that we elect prosecutors and that we elect judges. Now, you live in Florida, so I always love using Florida as an example. Florida is the most absurdly democratic with a small D state when it comes to criminal justice. The only jurisdiction in the history of the world, as far as I know, where you elect public defenders. It's crazy. And I always wondered what the campaign for public defender is. Candidate A says, I had Dershowitz as my teacher. Uh, He taught me every trick of the trade. Uh, He taught me how to win cases. Uh, If you elect me public defender, I will win my cases and the streets will be flooded with murderers, <laughs> robbers, rapists. Uh, candidate B, I went to Joe's Law School in Bait Shop, uncertified. I was last in my class. I know nothing about criminal law. If you elect me as public defender, I will lose all my cases and you will be safe from criminals. Now, that's not the way the campaign goes. The campaign goes, people who are good lawyers run and they say, we'll do it cheaply, efficiently, and you know we'll do it fairly. But the idea of electing public defenders is not nearly as absurd as the idea of electing prosecutors. Look what happened in New York. I'll give you an example. In New York, Letitia James runs for attorney general of New York on the campaign that she'll put Donald Trump in jail. Now, you know, a lot of people would like maybe to see that happen. But the idea that you run for election, the DA of Philadelphia ran on the campaign promise that he would put Bill Cosby in jail. When you run for re-election, when you run for election on a promise of putting people in jail, how can you ever say that the job of the prosecutor is to do justice? No, the job crazy. of the prosecutor is to get reelected, and to get reelected, you have to have notches in your belt. You have to get convictions. You try not to get convictions of innocent people because then Netflix will make a terrible story about you and you'll get in trouble. Uh, but if you can get guilty people convicted or even innocent people convicted, that can't get to Netflix, then you'll get reelected. But Professor, what do we do? Because appointments aren't so much better. You look at some of the appointments for judges, prosecutors, and public defenders. Do we want, for example, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, appointing our public defender? I think certainly not. We don't want him elected either. It's a tough question who 
should have the power to appoint judges, prosecutors, and public defenders. Okay, and other countries in the world have figured it out. Uh, number one, in some countries, particularly in Europe, these jobs are civil service jobs, and they're done by career people uh, who have no ambitions or goals beyond those jobs. In some places, like Canada, Israel, you have commissions that recommend uh, judges and, and justices and then the governor or the prime minister or whoever, the president, whoever does the appointing, uh, accepts the recommendations and you get high level uh, appointments. Um, you're absolutely right. The only system worse than electing prosecutors may be appointing them uh, by governors or judges. Because what is a federal judge? A federal judge is somebody who is friendly with a senator. What's a state judge? You know, a failed politician who couldn't make a living as a lawyer. And so they decided in New York, it used to be very easy to run for Supreme Court. You had to contribute one year salary uh, to the Democratic Party, and then you get the nomination. It was out and out bribery. It's crazy. Um, and it produced some pretty good judges. Uh, Justice Cardoza uh, sat on the New York Court of Appeals, but it also produced my favorite judge in New York was a guy named Hyman Barche. And uh, I got to meet him because my father had a small store on the Lower East Side and five days a week, it sold wholesale. And uh, on Sunday, it sold retail. On Shabbos, on Saturday, he was obviously not working. And so my father used to regularly get tickets for being open on Sunday. It was illegal in violation of blue laws. And one day, he brought me to court with him, and it was Judge Hyman Barche, a Jewish judge. And he said to my father, why were you open on Sunday? My father said, because I couldn't work on Saturday. And the judge said, did you go to the synagogue on Saturday? And my father said, yes. And the judge said, all right. What was the Torah portion of the week they read yesterday? And if my father got it right, he'd get the ticket torn up. If my father got it wrong, he'd get a double fine. So, you know, you get judges like that. Uh, <laughs> he was an elected judge and the Orthodox Jewish community always voted for him. Um, but, you know, elected judges and prosecutors are an abomination. They destroy any pretense of fairness to our legal system. And uh, that's why we criminal defense lawyers have to work so hard to offset the injustices that are inherent in our legal system. So the, the big moment, of course, in the OJ case was the glove moment. And I was there. You I was were in there. the courtroom that day. Yeah. You were there in the courtroom that day. And, and you know, one of the things that you're known for, Professor, is doing experiments, uh, science, sort of uh, seeing the chessboard. Right. The prosecutors clearly did not see the chessboard that day. They were inept to have O.J. Well, Simpson. They were, playing, they were playing checkers and we were playing chess. And uh, what happened is Darden really wasn't a particularly good lawyer. Um, um, could have had O.J. Simpson try on the glove outside the presence of the jury on the California law to see if it fit. He could have also required him to try it on without a latex glove underneath. They could have sprayed it and made sure it was, you know, uh, done uh, properly without any any possibility of contagion. But instead, because F. Lee Bailey walked up to him and basically said, you have the balls of a flea. You don't have the guts to have him try it on. He provoked him into trying it on. And there I was. Now, what you don't, what even you don't understand is the impact of that decision to have him try on the glove. I'm not going to be insulting to you, but I'll ask you whether you understand this part of it. Okay. So he tries on the glove. I'm sitting two feet away from him. He tries it on. Now, whether he belted, bent his fingers, whether the latex, whether there was, to quote Larry David from Seinfeld, whether there was shrinkage involved or not, uh, I don't know, but it clearly didn't fit. OJ then walked up to the jury, right in front of me, walked up to the jurors, looked them in the eye and said, I think the words were, it's too small. It's too small. Now, what was the significance of that? The significance of that is we, the defense lawyers who did not want him to testify, were able to persuade him. I remember in the lunch break, right after that happened, or the break, whatever it was, right after that happened, I said to him, OJ, you know, there's a big debate whether you should testify or not. We've resolved it today. You've testified. <laughs> you walked up to the jury. You testified. They heard your voice. They saw you. You weren't cross-examined. Keep your mouth shut for the rest of the trial. Just smile. And so the biggest impact of that glove, it wasn't if it doesn't fit, it, you must acquit. It was that O.J. Simpson didn't have to take the stand. If he had taken the stand, 
I guarantee you he would have been convicted. And were there, I mean, there's so much that I want to unpack from what you just said. Were there people on the team? I know Lee Bailey wanted him to testify. What was the Definitely. argument for what what was the argument for wanting him to testify? OJ uh, F. Lee Bailey thought he was framed and that he was absolutely innocent and that he'd be able to persuade the jury of that. OJ, I'm disclosing all this because it's all been disclosed by OJ Simpson, by F. Lee Bailey. I'm not revealing any lawyer client unwaived privileges. Um but most of the rest of the defense team did not want to testify. I was the strongest against that because we had won the case on science. We hadn't put on any fact witnesses, no fact witnesses at all. Nobody who could be cross-examined. The only witnesses we put on were scientists, Nobel quality scientists, to raise questions about some of the evidence. And so if he had taken the stand, the jury would have forgotten about all the scientists, all the evidence. They would have just looked him in the eye and said, we don't believe him. Uh, so How would he answer the question about beating his wife? Right, right. And and but did the jury know that he had those priors for domestic violence or those they arrests? Would have, he, they, they didn't when he didn't testify, but they would have had he testified and he would have probably tried to deny it or weasel out of it. And it would have not only made him uh, look non-credible, it would have obviously um, made him look like he's somebody who was capable of, of violence. So I think, and the best proof is he did take the stand in the civil case and he was immediately found liable in right. the civil case. And I don't think the difference was the standard of proof. I think the difference was, A, he testified and Furman didn't. So when you have all of these high profile, uh, big ego lawyers, and all of us criminal defense lawyers have quite substantial egos in a room. You have an ego? I've never, <laughs> never heard that before. My God, uh, you're such a mild-mannered, humble guy. Come I on. confess. I confess. But how, how do you make these decisions in a room? Are you all in a conference room and, and arguing uh, about what to do? And and how are those decisions made? And who ultimately is the captain who makes the decisions? Because there's a, I mean, Edward Bennett Williams famously said, uh, I'll do a trial with other people as long as they each have one vote and I have all of their votes plus one so I can make the final decision. He also had the famous story where he lost the case on behalf of a client in the Supreme Court and the client said, uh, where do we go from here? And Ed said, what do you mean we? I go back to my office, you go to jail. Um, uh, he also said to his clients, look, if you give me the case, I'm like the surgeon. I'm putting you under anesthesia. I don't want to hear a word from you. I'll wake you up when the trial's over and I'll tell you I've won. That's not the kind of lawyer I am. It's not the kind of lawyer you are. We work closely with our, our clients. And, um, but, uh, uh, you know, in this case, there was one captain. His name was O.J. Simpson. He's a very smart guy. We used to either meet with him in his prison cell. We weren't sure about the security there, so we were a little uncomfortable. And then we would have these lawyer-client calls, uh, which were supposed to be secure. And we would sit around in Johnny Cochran's office or Bob Shapiro's office, one of the offices, wherever it was. And there'd be a little telephone in the middle of the table. And the voice from the telephone would be O.J. Simpson's. And uh, and then we'd go around the table and, um, uh, you know, uh, we would we would argue these issues. Mostly we agreed, but we didn't agree about about uh, whether he should take the stand until after that glove incident occurred. And then uh, it, 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 it was clear he shouldn't testify further. And, and did you all know that the glove was not going to fit? Was this something that you knew before Darden, uh, before Lee Bailey challenged Darden or was, was, there, was that up in the air? I think we had a strong suspicion that uh, this would not go well for the prosecution one way or another, it would not go well for the prosecution. First of all, you don't give the defendant the ability to control the situation Especially uh, OJ, the, if you're a prosecutor, um, and uh, so we were fairly confident. Um, and of course, everybody focused on the glove. That way, it took the focus away from the shoes. It took the focus away from the blood. You know, it, 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 if if you had to teach a criminal law seminar on the worst defense ever presented in a case, um, it would probably be that one. A close second would be John Landis in California where they put him on trial for nine months, a trial that should have lasted a week, and they, we got an acquittal in that case as well, another science case. Um, prosecutors just don't know often how to try cases. And one of the reasons prosecutors often become terrible defense attorneys, terrible defense attorneys, uh, and often why prosecutors don't really become defense attorneys, they become prosecutors in robes. They just, you know, cozy up to their former colleagues and they try to get deals. And what clients don't realize is they don't get good deals. 
because you don't get a good deal because you're friendly with the prosecutor. You get a good deal because the prosecutor is scared of you and thinks you're going to beat his ass and you're going to win the case and he's going to lose the case. That's why you get good deals. But prosecutors generally don't know how to cross-examine because defendants don't take the witness stand, so they have nobody to cross-examine. Uh, the typical prosecutor runs his case like this. Uh, Your Honor, may I turn on the tape? Yes. Now what happened? Then what happened? Was that your tape? Yes. You know, put on a direct case. And that's not challenging. And most of the people they, they're trying cases for are obviously guilty. They get guilty pleas for most of them because we have in America what's called the trial penalty. The, the punishment for committing a given crime is a year in prison. And then the punishment for going to trial is nine additional years. So if you plead guilty, you get a year. And if you plead not guilty and are convicted, you get 10 years. So how many people go to trial? What? Less than 10 percent. It wasn't always like that. I mean, it no. used to be so many more people went to trial. And now our system is is aiming to a point where they don't want where the system doesn't want trials anymore. And so we have these punishments that are just insane. I mean, was was OJ offered a plea deal in the case? I can't get into that, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I had to try to see if he would tell us if OJ was offered a deal. We'll hear what he can talk about concerning the trial next. One of the great things about doing this podcast is all of the email I've been getting from lawyers around the country telling me their trial stories, uh, commenting on the trial strategy and so on. I think one of the top questions I've been getting is, what trial books do I recommend and do my guests recommend? And I can tell you that Professor Dershowitz has written some of the best trial and legal books there are. I would highly recommend um, reading The Best Defense by Alan Dershowitz and reading Reasonable Doubts, which is about this particular case, the O.J. Simpson case, and trying to explain why there were reasonable doubts. There's lots of other ones like Chutzpah but, and others, but I would recommend The Best Defense and Reasonable Doubts. We'll get back to Professor Dershowitz in For the Defense next. I can tell you the first case I ever had, first case I ever did, I was right, uh, like my first, second year as a teacher, I was asked to write a cert petition on this issue, mm -hmm. on the issue of the trial penalty, and I wrote it. And it was included in my tenure file because it was a really good cert petition. And Archibald Cox, who was the former Solicitor General, said it was the best cert petition he had ever seen. But it was denied. <laughs> and it was challenging the trial penalty. My client had gotten an additional year he would have gotten six months instead he got like a year and a half. Those were the days we had real penalties. We didn't add the zeros, which we've had ever since. Um, by the way, can I take some of the blame for that? So I have to take some of the blame for harsher sentences in America. Let's go back to 19. I think it's 1980. I get a call from Senator Ted Kennedy saying, I'd like you to work with my um, chief counsel, uh, your former colleague, uh, um, a man named Steve Breyer, um, uh, on a criminal reform bill for sentencing. I had written an article for the New York Times called Presumptive Sentencing, whereby we try to eliminate the disparity in sentencing and we'd have a rule of presumed sentences. And so we made a deal with the Republicans. I worked on that bill. We made a deal with the Republicans. The amount of time spent in prison, the number of person days in prison would not go up, would not vary. It would just be spread out more evenly over time. And that seemed like a good liberal reform. And so the bill was passed and then the Republicans broke their promise. And now we see sentences a multiple. Um, and by the way, part of the responsibility, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, um, uh, 1995, uh, that the worst criminal law reform ever enacted by Congress, uh, the effective death penalty, anti-terrorism bill, all of that increased prison sentences, made it more difficult to get people out, virtually abolished the writ of habeas corpus, all under the auspices of, quote, liberal Democrats. At that time, I wrote an article saying Clinton, who was my friend, who I liked, who I worked for, went to the White House, had dinner with many times. I said, in terms of criminal justice, he was worse than Richard Nixon. That it, bill was worse than anything Richard Nixon did. Well, the sentencing guidelines, I know, had good intentions in 1984, but horrible yeah. consequences. And it, yeah. it's always bothered me that your friend and colleague, uh, Justice Breyer, um, 
heard those challenges to the sentencing guidelines on the Supreme Court and was part of the um, group that that voted to affirm them in all those cases. I thought he should have had to recuse uh, mm-hmm. as have been one of the drafters of the sentencing guidelines, but he did he not. Recuse. Central. He was a major central drafter and he had good intentions. You know, Steve's a good guy um, and he should have voted the other way, but uh, or recused himself. I agree. But but I think he should have voted the other way. He knew that the deal was we wouldn't have more people spending more time in prison. I don't need to review the statistics with you. We have the largest percentage of our population in prison of any Western democracy. And unless you uh, believe the Iranian and Chinese statistics, which I don't, um, we may have more than any other country in the world. Right. And uh, it's just horrible. We have so many people. I'm not saying we have lots and lots of innocent people in prison. We have some. But what we have is a lot of people in prison who committed minor crimes for too much and time. were there for long, long, long periods of time, way in excess of what they should be. Too much time. So so back to, to OJ for a second and the closing, of course, we were talking about the glove. And if the glove does not fit, you must acquit, which was the famous line from Johnny Cochran's closing. Well, he didn't invent it. It was done by um, uh, the dean uh, Oh, I, I lost you for a, I lost you for a second. Tell me who invented it. I lost you for a second. Jerry Ullman, who was a professor at the University of Santa Clara Law School, one of our great members of our so-called dream team, which was really a nightmare team. We didn't get along very well. I got along with everybody because I was mostly not there. And Jerry Ullman got along with everybody. But, you know, uh, Lee Bailey and Bob Shapiro fought like children and some of the others as well. But uh, Jerry Ullman came up with, if it doesn't fit, you can't quit. It was great. But as I said, the most important part of that glove thing was it kept O.J. Simpson off the witness stand. So in that closing, I didn't know that uh, Johnny didn't come up with that line. I love that uh, Omen came up with that. But a lot of Johnny's closing talked about race. And I, I went back and read some of what you wrote about that. And you seemed a little troubled that he went as far as he did with the I did. race. I did. Why? Why is that, Professor? Well, I was concerned about several things. Number one, you know, he was threatened. And so he got bodyguards and the bodyguards were the fruits of Islam. The, the um, um, black um, uh, Muslim groups that were virulently anti-Semitic. And it made me feel uncomfortable to have to walk in courtroom with Johnny Cochran with a bunch of anti-Semites standing next to him. I didn't, I didn't like that. And I just didn't like some of the ways in which he infused race into the case. I, I didn't criticize him um, uh, publicly. Um, you know, he did a very good job on the closing and and and, and um, so did Barry Sheck. Uh, he did a very good job in the closing. I think Barry's closing had a, a, a big impact on the jury because it was the combination was good. Uh, Barry's was very scientific, very low key. And Johnny's was, uh, you know, emotional and political. And you can't let the police get away with it. You have to send them a message. If a prosecutor ever tried to make that argument, we'd object to it. But uh, he did. People don't remember Barry Sheck's closing. It was a big part of the defense because it really oh, yeah. dealt with all the science that everybody was debating. And and Barry Sheck clearly outlawed uh, the prosecution on the science. I mean, it was it was it was uh, night and day. I recommended Barry to join the defense team, and it got some pushback uh, from some of the people in California saying he was too New York, um, and he is New York. Uh, so am I. Um, but, uh, he, um, he did a great, he did a, a great job. Look, uh, as I said before, we didn't win the case. The prosecution lost the case. It was a winnable case from the prosecution's point of view. People say, uh, you're Boston, not New York. I know you're a big Celtic fan. It will, it will pain your Celtics to hear that you're New York. Hey, I grew up in Brooklyn, rooted for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, I own the 1955 Brooklyn Dodger world championship ring, um, owned by Don Zimmer, who, of course, also played for the uh, or worked with the Boston Red Sox. So I have I have, you know, split loyalties. Uh, I'm a, I, on sports. I'm all in Boston, but uh, I'm a New Yorker. So one of the things Johnny said in his closing, he, he made a comparison to Hitler. Uh, let me read it. He That's said, what I didn't like. Right? He said he said, quote, there was another man not too long ago in the world who had racist views and they didn't do anything about it. This man became one of the worst people in the world, Adolf Hitler, because people didn't care, didn't try to stop him. 
And and he got a lot of uh, a lot of criticism for the Hitler reference from me too. He got criticism from me. I said to him, Johnny, don't ever make comparisons to the Holocaust. And he personally apologized to me for it. And um, it shouldn't be done. People are doing it today um, in a synagogue in Boston. Just uh, last week, a message was sent out to the congregants uh, celebrating Kristallnacht, the night that began the kind of Nazi pogroms, and comparing it to Donald Trump. Uh, whatever you might think of Donald Trump, any comparison between Donald Trump and Hitler is out of bounds. Uh, it was done by um, uh, Fareed Zakara. It was done by uh, Amanpour, Christina Amanpour. It's done routinely, making that comparison. It, it, it subtly is a form of Holocaust denial. Let me tell you why. Uh, if you're a young person and don't know the history of the Holocaust and you hear people say Trump's like Hitler, well, you're basically saying, oh, then there weren't gas chambers. There weren't death camps because there were no death camps here. Uh, there were no pogroms. There were no rounding up of people and shooting them and putting them in mass graves. But you can't make those kinds of comparisons. And I let Johnny Cochran know my views about that. Now, in law school, I liked Johnny Cochran, though. By the way, he was a great leader. He was able to keep the team together. And for me, it was a great privilege and honor to be working under the direction of a leader who was an African-American lawyer. I thought that sent out a, a, an even more important message uh, in the in the uh, OJ case than the acquittal itself. And he won. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, nobody thought, I mean, everybody thought OJ was going to be convicted. People were Me outraged. too. I was ready to argue the appeal. You know, I was the appellate lawyer. I was what he called the guard forbid lawyer. Um, God forbid he should lose. You'd be interested. I published this and OJ said this, so I'm not revealing a, a privilege. I said to him, if you lose the case, um, we probably will not win the appeal. Elected judges in California, subject to recall, are not going to reverse the conviction of OJ Simpson. So we better win the trial. You know, Professor, you reminded me when you were talking about Hitler a few minutes ago, a hypo you gave in law school, which was if no one would represent Hitler, let's say he was captured alive, no one would represent yeah. him. You asked the classroom, would, would any of you represent him to save the system? And nobody raised their hand. It was dead silence in the class. So I give the hypo back to you. Would you represent him if no one else would to save the system? Well, I don't know whether I could. I would have such hatred toward him. I was once asked would I represent him in 1943 in the middle of the Holocaust if he were uh, about to be arrested. And I said, no, I'd seek a meeting with him. And then I try to strangle him with my bare hands, uh, not as a lawyer, but as a, as a Jew, as an individual, as a per person who cares about human rights. I doubt that I could represent somebody like that. Look, I was asked to represent Radovan Karadzic, who was called the butcher of Serbia. Um, I did represent um, a young man who was accused of uh, murdering nine nuns, laying them down on the floor and shooting them each in the head. Um, I've represented some pretty awful people, as have you. And, um, you know, uh, we don't usually, we don't serve as judge and jury. We right. serve, but, you know, the Holocaust is different. And the rules that generally apply to civilized society don't generally apply to the Holocaust. Look, the Nuremberg laws uh, were retroactive. They were ex post facto laws. Um, were they fairly applied? Uh, should we have trials based on laws that were devised after the crimes were committed. These were all hard questions, but in the face of the Holocaust, I think people just uh, generally decided to uh, do uh, uh, oh, basic justice rather than necessarily legal justice. When you talk about the God forbid lawyer and the appeal and telling OJ that there may not have been some great issues, were there any good issues for the appeal? Oh, there were thought... great issues. Oh, I think, I think had his name been John Smith, we might very well have won. I mean, the search and seizure, obviously, was a right. great issue. Uh, um, there were some evidence excluded. For example, uh, we had um, um, uh, Officer Furman using the N-word repeatedly over and over and over again. We had the tapes and the judge limited uh, our use of that to only two or three uh, handful of instances. We had some good appellate issues, but, you know, good appellate issues require for reversal a good client. And sometimes, you know, Mike Tyson. What any happened with Mike Tyson? What happened with Mike Tyson? Any first-year law student should have been able to win the appeal in that case. Any first-year law student. And uh, we lost it uh, in a divided vote, three to two and then two to two in the Supreme Court. 
uh, you know, there were witnesses, eyewitnesses who were prepared to testify uh, that she was lying and that she was cuddling with him and necking with him and voluntarily went into the hotel. All of that was uh, excluded. She gave the wrong instruction on consent. There were all kinds of issues in the case, but his name was Mike Tyson. Right. And uh, you, the Indiana Supreme Court had a trophy and they didn't want to reverse. They actually split two to two. We lost the case on a two to two divided vote because the chief justice recused himself as a result of setting me up. What happened is at my Yale Law School reunion, I was sitting and talking to Stephen J. Trachtenberg, who was the president of um, uh, George Washington University. This woman tapped me on the shoulder and started bothering me. I said, excuse me, ma'am, but I'm in the middle of a conversation. Said, no, I just want to tell you that uh, in New York, you're not in New York anymore. In Indiana, the rules are different. I said, well, who are you? She said, I'm the wife of the chief justice. No. I said, excuse me, ma'am, I, I really can't talk to you. I have a case pending. She walked away. As a result of that, the chief justice recused himself. Oh. We later found out that he recused himself because he had been accused of sexual misconduct with a man when he was the chief justice. He didn't want that to come out. And so he used, he sent his wife over to wow. talk to me to recuse himself. And the case gets decided on a two to two vote. It's just an outrage. What a terrible way to lose the Mike Tyson appeal. We'll get back to the OJ Simpson case next. I'm going to speak with Professor Dershowitz about cameras in the courtroom and specifically in the O.J. Simpson courtroom next. But before I get there, I'll tell you a funny story about uh, cameras in the courtroom as it concerns me. When I was in Harvard Law School, I made it to the final round of the Ames Moot Court competition and I was going to be arguing in front of Justice Kennedy and two other very well-respected Court of Appeals judges. And the audience was packed in the Ames courtroom. There were hundreds of people there. There was also going to be a camera. C-SPAN was going to televise the argument. And I was so, so nervous because it was my first time on TV arguing before Supreme Court justice. My parents had flown up. Uh, my future wife was in the crowd, all my friends and so on. And my teammate was arguing and it was getting ready for me to argue. And I had to run to the restroom uh, and I ran out of the courtroom. I knew the camera had picked me up leaving. My teammates were looking at me as I was running out. And I ran back into the courtroom just in time to get up and argue before Justice Kennedy and make my camera debut. What a way to start. But it all worked out in the end as we won that argument. Let's get back to Professor Dershowitz in For the Defense next. You know, one of the topics I wanted to talk to you about, I know we don't have too much time left, is the media and cameras in the courtroom. Of course, OJ had cameras in the courtroom. It really changed the landscape of the public's viewing of criminal trials. Is Are cameras in the courtroom a good thing, bad thing? Do we want them? I think we need them. Um, I'm not sure we want them. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I do yeah. think that under our constitution, that there's no branch of government that should be immune from public scrutiny. Polls interestingly showed that people who watched the trial on television every day were less surprised at the verdict than people who just read about it in the newspaper. So, you know, if the alternative is watching something in person or reading the New York Times or the Miami Herald, it's not even a close question. Well, I do not believe what you read in the Miami Herald. Do not believe what you read in the New York Times. Uh, believe what you see with your own eyes. I'm always reminded of Groucho Marx's famous statement. Uh, who are you going to believe uh, me? Uh, what you saw what, me or your lying eyes or something like that. Um, uh, the New York Times just this week had an account of the Jonathan Pollard case, in which I played a role in which they had lie after lie after lie in the front page of the New York Times pretending to be news. And the same thing was true with the O.J. Simpson case. The news reports about the case were so different than what you saw in person. Um, for example, in the news reports, you didn't see how badly Barry Sheck had demolished the testimony of, um, of the, the medical experts. You didn't see that. All you saw in the end was the medical expert. Because, you know, newspapers root for outcomes. The Miami Herald has these stories over and over again, uh, asserting the credibility of the woman who falsely accused me of uh, as a woman I never met. And the Miami Herald knew that she was lying because they had all this information. They had tape recordings. They had admissions. They had 
emails. They never published any of that. So do not believe what you read in the Miami Herald and the New York Times. Well, it's interesting. In the OJ case, I remember watching the glove incident and clearly seeing it did not fit. And then the next day, seeing headlines from the Boston Globe that said, a uh, glove snugly fits OJ during trial experiment. And I and I went back and thought, did I not see him not being able to get the glove? We well, just because- don't understand the meaning of the word snugly. <laughs> right. I mean, snugly, it was snugly. Right. But went so, up to so, here. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, clearly we want to be able to see these things. Michael sure. Jackson's trial was not televised. And I spoke to Tom Mesro about it and, he was just outraged by some of the coverage. And, and uh, I think there, it would have been better to have cameras in, in those trials so that we could see actually what happened instead of relying on uh, a reporter's account of what happened. But sometimes, though, when trials are going to be on television, prosecutors use that as a plea bargain. They say, you really right. want your whole family to see all this and all your friends to see this. And I've heard cases where the threat of having televised trials has induced people to settle or plead guilty. So So it's a a double-edged sword. There are no simple solutions to any of these problems. You know, we live in a world where nuance, where calibration, where middle ground is now dismissed. Um, Everybody takes extreme positions on almost everything. And I think we've lost a great deal. You'll remember in my classes, I didn't express my own views on things. I was the devil's advocate on everything. I didn't try to tell you what to think. I tried to teach you how to think. If you came into the class as a conservative, I wanted you to go out as a better conservative. Come in as a liberal, I want you to come out as a smarter liberal. Look, people could read my arguments outside of class and my opinions. I'm a very opinionated guy. But, uh, you know, my teaching was designed to use the Socratic method to teach you to be better lawyers. And I know with you, I succeeded beyond all belief and expectation. So continue doing great things. You know, Professor, you talked about Yom Kippur at the very beginning and not having class on Yom Kippur. The verdict came out uh, on a Tuesday. Um, I think Yom Kippur was supposed to be that year on on Wednesday or Thursday. And you were supposed to fly out and then said, no, I'm not going to fly out because it's Yom Kippur. No, it's, it's an even better story. So we learned on the day before Yom Remember, Yom Kippur starts at night on Kol Nidre night. Right. So the day before that, we learned the verdict had been reached, but the judge postponed delivery of the verdict until the next day. The defense team asked me to fly out because everybody thought he might be convicted and they wanted me to immediately file the appeal and announce what the appellate issues are. And I said, no, I couldn't do it. I have to be with my family in Yom Kippur. So the verdict is then announced midday. Four or five hours later, I go to the synagogue where they usually allow me to hold the Torah. They give me an honor. Nobody would talk to me. Nobody would say hello to me. Nobody wished me Happy New Year. Nobody did anything (laughs) until we came to the part of the service where you hit your heart and you admit your sins. And one of the sins you admit is, God, I admit that I counseled evil. Uh, And when I did that, people seemed to turn around and look to see how hard I hit my heart. (laughs) Well, uh, I didn't hit it very hard because I didn't counsel evil. I counseled justice. Was was he was OJ your most hated client ever? I I remember the hate no, mail you got. No, Donald Trump. Not More than OJ. Close. Huh? More than OJ. Oh, not even close. I mean, I lost so many friends. You, you may notice I'm 15 pounds lighter than when you probably last saw me. It's the Trump diet. Nobody invites me to dinner anymore. <laughs> I was able to easily distance myself from people socially because nobody wants to talk to me on Martha's Vineyard. Nobody wants to have anything to do with me. It's not even close. Uh, O.J. Simpson, a lot of people were furious at me. A lot of people hated me. I got a copy of Hutchbo, the swastika on it. Uh, My mother got uh, a letter threatening to slit her throat the way O.J. slit. I was called by Darden. Darden said I had blood on my hands, the prosecutor. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, but uh, nothing compares with Donald Trump. Nothing. What? Why are people like Darden and Marsha Clark being celebrated now on these TV shows and miniseries um, when they, as you say, lost the trial, didn't do a great job? But it seems like uh, in some of these miniseries and the like, they're being celebrated. They're on the right side. People pick sides. Uh, if they're on the right side, they're going to be celebrated, no matter how good a job. Uh, we might have done, we're not going to be celebrated. As I said to people, if we had lost the case, people would say, oh, wow, that's great. They defended somebody, they worked hard, 
but you know, justice was done. But when people think justice was not done, same thing with the Jeffrey Epstein case. People are furious at me because they think I got too good a deal. I didn't get the deal. I advocated the best deal. Would somebody want me to advocate less than the best deal for my client? The prosecutors allowed the deal. The judge certified the deal. Don't blame me for getting a good deal for my client. So people, I think, believe that people like Epstein and OJ and Klaus von Bülow can buy justice where the majority of people are stuck with uh, regular old defense lawyers and not the Alan Dershowitz and Johnny Cochran's. There's a point to that. And we ought to elevate the status of lawyers and get better lawyers for poor people. But uh, the same thing is true with medicine. Uh, you know, a person gets sick and can pick the best doctors in the world, might have a better chance. Given a choice between a good lawyer and a good case, I'll take the good case anytime. Uh, evidence of innocence and all of that. But having good lawyers is is important. And that's part of the injustice in our system. By the way, being very wealthy and famous is a two-edged sword in the criminal justice system. A lot of people would never be prosecuted if they weren't famous uh, because they're trophies for the prosecution. And so sometimes, you know, Leona Helmsley, she never would have been prosecuted for allegedly cheating on one-tenth of one percent of her income, but she was Leona Helmsley and she was indicted what day? April 15th, the day people file their tax returns in order to send a power. Martha message. Stewart. Yeah, Martha Stewart. Yeah. So uh, these are all nuanced situations. And uh, there's this there's, there's virtual advice on both sides. OK, a couple last questions. One fun one for you, Professor. So you've been played by lots of different people in movies and TV shows. Of course, Ron Silver played you in Reversal of Fortune. Was that the best portrayal of Dersh, the Ron Silver portrayal, or, or which one was the best one? That was the best portrayal so far, but we, we have you in mind for my next uh, picture. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, no, Ron did a great job. Why he did a good job is he came and followed me around. He watched my classes. Uh, he watched me in court. He adopted my mannerisms. Uh, you know, was it perfect? No, of course not. But uh, it was it was a very good, very good portrayal. Okay, last couple of questions. Ha- have jury trials changed since the O.J. Simpson trial? Have has has uh, have yeah. we seen different trials? Well, first of all, they've disappeared. Uh, there are very few jury trials today because of the trial penalty, and people are punished for going to trial. But they have changed. I think uh, the O.J. Simpson case uh, generated a bunch of TV shows um, about forensic evidence. And I think juries may want more forensic evidence now than they're likely to get in some cases. I mean, the O.J. phenomenon did um, operate on juries for a period. I'm not sure it still continues to operate. But I think also the public became much more interested in trials. I think racial issues, racial divisions become more or exacerbated. So, uh, um, but, uh, you know, we still, we still, we still suffer from a lot of racism in this country, but people who are as old as I am, remember, I grew up in an age where segregation was lawful. I grew up in an age where you could go to jail for being gay. I grew up in an age when women had to go to back alleys for abortions, the improvements that we've had, you know, people ask me, do we have systemic racism in the United States? My answer is, we have systemic anti-racism in the United States. Every system is anti-racist. Every system, every government official is anti-racist. We have lots of racism, but it's not systemic. The systemic is anti-racism. There is some racism that permeates the system, particularly the criminal justice system, where African-Americans are treated disproportionately harsh at every stage. But the systems are fighting against it. The courts are fighting against it. Well, and so we so- have far less racism than we ever had. Too much, much too much, but far less than we ever had in the past. Well, certainly a lot of the systems are, are improving. There's no question about that, despite all the problems. One debate I think we could have is whether the criminal justice system is improving or not. Uh, with the decrease in trials, with the sentences going up. I think there's a real argument to be made. Our criminal justice system is in trouble and and uh, it is not and and may not be the best system in the world. I'm not sure what system is the best criminal justice system in the world. Ours used to be. Um, but I'm concerned about it, Professor. I'm not sure our criminal justice system ever was the best system in the world. Um, it may have been the best system for protecting values other than truth, uh, for protecting privacy, for protecting 
bodily integrity and all of that. But it's always been a somewhat inaccurate uh, system. Um, I think it's less professional. You know, in, in Germany and in France and in England, it, it's a much more highly professional system. And I think fewer mistakes are made because there is less motive to prosecute zealously in, in close cases. So our system has a lot of problems. Um, and it's not the best system in the world. You know, it's not like we say about democracy. Churchill said the worst system except all the others that have been tried or free speech, the worst except for all the others. I'm not sure that our criminal justice is the best except for all the others. Um, if you compare it, for example, to military justice, military justice is highly accurate um, because you have professionals deciding guilt or innocence, but it can be very unfair. You have command influence. You don't have the rights that you have in the criminal justice system. The Constitution doesn't fully apply in all respects. So you have to balance various aspects of the system. But I think I agree with you. Our criminal justice system is not the best in the world. So what I loved about this last hour is it brought me back to 1995 and 96, being in your classes, thinking about these issues, debating, having, having an open discourse. It's so rare these days to be able to do that and to have a discussion that makes you think about the important issues. So thank you, Professor, for doing this. Well, I appreciate it. You know, thinking is no longer part of what we do in public dialogue. What we do is just choose, choose sides and then listen to what our side leader tells us to say. So anything that encourages thinking, I'm in favor of. You encourage thinking. You haven't changed much in the last, what is it, 25 years? You look the same. Uh, you're just as smart except you're a lot more experienced and you're a great, great criminal lawyer. And I'm so proud of all that you've done. I look forward to working with you to achieve justice and improve the criminal justice system. Thank you, Professor. Thanks so much for doing this. It was really a treat and my pleasure. Thank you. My treat and my pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was a great, fun hour with Professor Dershowitz. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We spoke not just about OJ, but about the criminal justice system in general. And what I've always liked about Professor Dershowitz, agree with him or not, there's obviously lots of times when I don't, and I'm sure that you don't, but he always made me think. He always made me think about issues I had not thought about before. And I hope that's what he did in this episode. And I hope that's what this podcast is doing is um, getting us all to reevaluate certain positions, uh, reevaluate our thought process, and really have an open mind about different issues. Um, I'll see you all next week in episode two of season two of For the Defense. Thanks again for listening.